Well, let's uh, begin with prayer. Gracious God, we come into your presence desiring to be instructed. Uh, we know that our Savior alone uh, has seen, as it were, your essence and declared you unto us, and that he has particularly said that you are spirit and that those who worship you must worship you in spirit and in truth. We ask that you would take the truth of your spiritual character as our one true eternal God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and that you would enable us to apply it relevantly and effectually uh, from the scriptures themselves to our lives, and that we would indeed become spiritual Christians in our worship and in our conduct. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we continue our consideration of theology proper, and in particular, God's attribute of spirituality, the spirituality of God. And as has been our method, we began last time with a consideration of the key scriptural proof text for this attribute of God, John 4.24, God is spirit, or as other translations say, God is a spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. We looked at the context of that passage, uh, we noted that it teaches us the immaterial essence of God, that God is spiritual and that first and foremost, that means that he's immaterial. He does not have a physical body such as we do or, or such as uh, of any kind. Uh, he's immaterial. Uh, we talked about the fact that spirituality can be used in relation to God in a broader sense to include not only the fact that he's immaterial, but also the fact that he is invisible and indivisible. That is, he has a simple essence that can't be divided up into parts. But we considered the more restricted definition that God is spirit in the sense that he is immaterial. We saw that from other portions of scripture. We made a distinction between God's spiritual essence and the second person who shares in that one essence, namely, or the third person rather, who shares in that essence, namely the Holy Spirit. And we said that the term spirit in relation to the Holy Spirit has reference to his eternal spiration, the outbreathing of the Father and the Son from all eternity as a personal property of that third person of the Trinity. And it's not to be equated with the immateriality of God or the spirituality of God because spiration is unique to the Holy Spirit, whereas spirituality is equally shared by all three persons in that one nature of God. We also address some polemical questions, which uh, I'm not going to get into now, um, but uh, we're going to move to the practical application of these things. And we turn to 1 John 5, verse 21 at the end of John's first epistle for a key text that really helps us to apply the spirituality of God, really building on the foundation of John 4:24. God is a spirit. Those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Well, we're going to apply that principle 
to our worship of God and to our broader Christian lifestyle, which of course is more generally speaking an act of worship. We offer ourselves as a living sacrifice. In that sense, all of life is worship, but uh, we make an important distinction, of course, between um, uh, the direct acts of worship and the more general lifestyle of service to God. And so, uh, but we're going to apply this to both of those principles worshiping God in spirit and in truth. And so we go to 1 John 5.21. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Remember we said that because God is a spirit, uh, it's completely inappropriate and, and sinful for us to incorporate physical, vis- visual, material images into the worship of our immaterial God. And so the second commandment forbids us from worshiping Jehovah according to images, making an image of Him, such as the golden calf in the book of Exodus, where the children of Israel made a golden calf and said, let's have a feast to Jehovah. This is the God who brought us out of Egypt. They sought to worship the immaterial God with material images and Even more broadly, when people are worshiping false gods and violating the first commandment, they tend to violate the second commandment as well. They tend to worship their false gods in false ways, and they tend to worship them by way of images, Romans 1, 22 through 25, uh, exchanging the glory of our immaterial God for these tangible visual images and idols. And uh, I think it's fair to say that when we in the church worship the true God in an idolatrous or false way, especially a tangible way with images, then we tend to sow the seeds of the violation of the first commandment where we're now beginning to worship a God who is false entirely. So that's important to realize that connection. When John says, keep yourselves from idols, he's, he's dealing with uh, all of these types of things. But especially, he's telling us to to beware of what was prevalent in his own day, the replacing of the spiritual God with images. And certainly that's been a stumbling block for the church throughout the ages. So the first thing we glean from this is worship God spiritually as defined by God's truth. That's what it means, spirit and truth. We worship God in a spiritual way as defined by God's truth. And when we define it by God's truth, we find that God's worship manifests the true substance and reality of these new covenant blessings. And we looked at that last time as well. But let's worship God spiritually as defined by God's truth. Now, that statement is very important. And you'll notice as we go through these applications under the first major heading here, that Uh, we have to be careful that we don't veer in the direction of one of these items over against the other. And especially we need to be careful of worshiping God in a spiritual way that's not defined by God's truth. And we also need to beware of worshiping God according to truth when our heart is not in it. So we're going to look at these things. Uh, Under this heading first, keep yourselves from material images of God. These material images are not reflective of His spiritual essence. It's a lie. 
a, a visual worship aid that is meant to somehow uh, represent God or give you a greater sense that God is present in and through that tangible item or object, that um, image or uh, icon, keep yourself from it. That is idolatry. And it's a lie. Habakkuk 2, 18-20 is a passage uh, that comes to mind. What profit is the image that its maker should carve it? The molded image, a teacher of lies. So people say, well, you know, people, they struggle with an immaterial spiritual God. So let's come up with all of these visual worship aids. Let's come up with these images of God. Moses went up the mountain. He's not here anymore to be the physical representation of God as his prophet. And so let's make a golden calf and have a feast to Jehovah and say that this calf represents the God that brought us out of Egypt, and, and it'll help teach people. It'll help instruct them. This is the argument of the Roman Catholic Church as to why they allow these types of images and idols. It's to teach people, but the Bible says quite the contrary. The molded image is a teacher of lies. So yes, it's true that these paintings of God as an old man stretching out his hand, it's true that that teaches something. The problem is that it teaches a lie about God because God is not an old man. Uh, God is not a man. He's not old. He's ancient, but He's eternal. Uh, he, he's eternal, and outside of time, He's not waxing old with gray hair and a beard. So understand, the molded image is a teacher of lies, uh, that the maker of its mold should trust in it. You see, people begin to take this visual worship aid, this representation of God, and they now begin to worship it or worship God through it. So they're actually putting their trust in the idol, which Habakkuk says is a mute idol. Uh, as Psalm 115 and Psalm 135 point out, unlike these visual images of God, God can see and hear and perceive but these things are dead and dumb and mute idols. So it's teaching a lie. Woe to him who says to wood, awake, to silent stone, arise. It shall teach. Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, yet in it there is no breath at all. Now, in the ancient world, gold and silver would have made something, I guess you could say today that would be the case, but understand, this would, have, this would have made it to appear very attractive, very modern, very ornate. And in the church today, we can be guilty of this. We can establish aspects to our worship that uh, really take the attention away from God, and they're not biblical, and they're not spiritual. They're tangible and physical. They, appear, they appeal to the five senses, and they're meant to supplement and enhance our worship and all of these things as if clothed and overlaid with gold and silver, but these things have no breath in them. And if you come to God's house to be comforted and entertained by all of these smells and bells and outward sensual forms of amusement and entertainment or whatever, then you're actually engaging with dead material objects rather than uh, the breath, the spirit of the Almighty through the invisible, immaterial presence of God. Jeremiah chapter 10, verse 14 and following.
Everyone is dull-hearted, without knowledge. Every metalsmith is put to shame by an image. For his molded image is falsehood, and there is no breath in them. They are futile. So if somebody says, well, we need to be pragmatic about this, well, you take them to Jeremiah 10, verse 14 uh, and 15. God says it's futile, it's pointless, it's not going to help. A work of errors, in the time of their punishment, they shall perish. The portion of Jacob, listen, is not like them. That's why it's a lie, because you begin to think that God is like these images. And I know at this point, we're not dealing with the images of Christ, which we would reject on a slightly different ground, according to the second commandment. Uh, But the same objection can be made to attempted uh, portraits of Christ, is that Christ is not like those portraits, and they begin to communicate a wrong idea and a wrong... Uh, perception of who he is according to that presentation but all the more of God who who never you know his his uh, divine essence which has never been seen futile a work of errors Uh, the portion of Jacob is not like them for he is the maker of all things and Israel is the tribe of his inheritance Jehovah of hosts is his name so he's the maker of all things which means You can't represent the Creator by way of a created object. Okay, that's a problem. And so we need to beware. Keep ourselves from material images. Psalm 50, verse 21, when we begin to view God in this way, we we inevitably begin to view God as uh, much like ourselves. Much like ourselves. Uh, We don't view God as infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in His holiness and righteousness, but we we think, well, uh, He's he's a lot like me, and I don't get too concerned about some of these ethical issues, and so it's not a big deal. And God says, you thought I was like you, but now I'm going to come and lay the wood and bring judgment. Uh, We need to recognize uh, the true God, not the Mr. Potato God that we create in our own image, who uh, ultimately reflects our own opinions, what good is that? Uh, The the judge of all the earth needs to be the one who defines the standard of righteousness and keeps us in check with it, not a creation of our own desires and images. Uh, So keep yourselves from material images of God. Secondly, keep yourselves from materialistic worship in general. And I've already kind of alluded to this. But when we come into New Covenant worship, we should not be seeking the smells, the bells, the outward sensual uh, amusements or the, the sorts of things in, in uh, maybe a high church Anglicanism or Roman Catholicism where there's this massive cathedral and we feel so small and we look up into the, into the heights of the, the high ceiling. Uh, we need to be careful that we're not worshiping the angels in the architecture, but we're actually coming into the presence of God, whose people worshiped Him in all kinds of places throughout history uh, that didn't always in themselves communicate the, the, these kinds of uh, things. Now, of course, we want to have a suitable place to worship, and, and these things are relevant when it comes to practical circumstances of worship, but that should not be the focus And so if it is a problem that behind the pulpit it's just completely bland and uh, there's nothing back there, there's not a a brook or a river or a good shepherd with some sheep, that shouldn't bother us, right? That shouldn't bother us. 
Uh, some have suggested we should have some design. I don't know. But the point is, it shouldn't bother us. We shouldn't be, that, that's the last thing in a sense we should be worried about. Um, the material circumstances of worship. We should be focused on worshiping in spirit and in truth. Uh, you see in Hebrews 12 that even more so than old covenant worship, New Covenant worship does not have this outward Mount Sinai with all these amazing outward things to get our attention, the smoke, the darkness, the tempest, the sound of a trumpet. Okay, we don't, we don't have any of those things, not even the sound of a trumpet. Uh, New Covenant worship is spiritual. And so verse 22 of Hebrews 12, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to God the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect, to Jesus the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. We're to come to listen to the voice from heaven speaking through the word, if you go on in the chapter. And we're to have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear, for He's a consuming fire. So our worship needs to be spiritually minded, heavenly minded. Christ said, if two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in their midst. So we can't see Him, and so we should not be terminating our eyes, or, or, or our focus should not be terminating on physical objects, uh, if we did have a design behind the pulpit, right, you shouldn't be distracted counting the number of squares or something like that as, as children maybe tend to do or maybe adults, I don't know. But it's a distraction. Uh, we need to be focused on the presence of Christ, which can't be discerned by the five senses. Uh, it can be enhanced by the five senses in a way because we're listening to other people sing the Psalms. We're listening through our eardrums to the preaching of the Word and the passion of the preacher and we're, we're praying together, and there's an element of being of that physical proximity with other believers, and we experience that in a variety of ways, as we'll see in a moment. So we're not Gnostics, but 1 Corinthians 14, 24, and 25 tells us that if a stranger comes into your assembly, he should be so impacted by the spiritual essence of the worship, that we're truly having dealings with God, and he'll say, truly God is in this place, right? As Jacob said at Bethel, truly God is in this place, and I knew it not. This is the house of God and the gate of heaven, and the person will fall down on their knees and confess that God is among you, because they notice the spirituality of the worship, that it's not terminating on the physical objects. And uh, you can see this reflected as well, Colossians 3.16, uh, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Ephesians 5.18-20, don't be filled with wine, but with the Holy Spirit. And it talks about our psalm singing. Th these are principles that we need to apply. We need to avoid materialistic worship in general. However, we need to keep ourselves from Gnosticism. Remember I said we want to worship in spirit and in truth, and this means that our concept of spirituality has to be kept in check by God's truth. It's not just a blank check, spiritual worship, so anything that we think is spiritual 
or that somehow aids our spirituality or expresses our spiritual thoughts and desires should be incorporated into worship. And it's not as though things that we think, well, oh, uh, baptizing people with water, physical water. Uh, Christ cleanses us by the Holy Spirit who's immaterial. And so that's, that's physical. That's unspiritual. Let's get rid of baptism and let's get rid of the Lord's Supper because there's bread and there are crumbs on the floor and, and uh, uh, you know, drinking a, a literal liquid in worship. I mean, how unspiritual is that? Uh, we need to be careful that our definition of spiritual, when we think of spiritual worship, is not a purely metaphysical character or category. That it's not a purely metaphysical category. In other words, spiritual worship is spirit-defined worship. And the Spirit defines worship as He does every good work in the Scriptures, which are breathed out by God the Holy Spirit and are profitable to equip us for every good work. So we need Spirit-defined worship. That is biblical worship. Now that doesn't mean that biblical worship won't be of a spiritual nature and focus on spiritual things all the more in the New Testament. Absolutely it means that. Uh, In fact, there was a documentary called Spirit and Truth, Worship in Spirit and Truth, that uh, I think was helpful in a variety of ways in terms of pointing out the need for biblical worship, worship in truth. But uh, one thing I I would encourage whoever makes those things to come up with uh, a sequel where they address worship in spirit, because I, I felt like most of the documentary was about biblical worship, but they didn't seem to say as much about spiritual worship uh, now, I know there's also a documentary on revival that was put out, I think, by Joel Beakey and some others. seems like when in doubt, just say Joel Beakey. He puts out almost all of these documentaries. But uh, So there are people addressing that, the idea of being filled with the Spirit, revival taking place in the worship of God. But we need to be careful that we're balanced, that it's spiritual worship and biblical worship. But that means Spirit-defined. And so we don't reject the sacraments like the Salvation Army uh, and other groups perhaps. Uh, We don't have a lower view of the sacraments simply because they're physical in nature, at least in the outward elements. We have a high view of the sacraments because we understand that the Holy Spirit has uh, inspired the Scriptures to command us to observe these things within the context of a fully-orbed spiritual worship. And so these things feed into our spiritual worship because we're psychosomatic beings. So we have a body and a soul. So the preaching of the Word addresses us through our physical eardrums, but it, it directly instructs us in our spirits, if you will. It's intellectual. It's something that is... Uh, speaking to us without tangible objects, but we also need, in our present weakness, these tangible signs and seals of the covenant of grace. And the Spirit, who knows spirituality much better than we do, has instructed us to do these things. And He uses them to produce spiritual blessing by faith and through union with Christ. So beware of Gnosticism, which... Uh, though we, we definitely, as we said last time, 
we want to elevate the soul in a sense above the body in the sense that uh, the body is the instrument of the soul. Our members are instruments of righteousness whereby that image of God impressed on our souls manifests itself through our bodily life in this world. So the soul is definitely elevated in that sense, but both body and soul are constituent elements of our humanity. Both are important. Jesus died to save both, and we should take both very seriously, and, uh, and therefore we should not embrace this sort of uh, spirit-good, body-bad, Gnostic perspective. Spiritual, as defined by the Spirit, is what we're looking for. Now, Second major heading of application as we broaden this to speak of the Christian life in general. Live for God spiritually as defined by God's truth. And in the very same way, we need to be careful to be balanced. Because of course, the Spirit-defined biblical perspective on the Christian life is going to be spiritual. It's going to be heavenly-minded. It's going to exalt the mind, will, and emotions of the believer's soul. It's going to uh, keep in check our bodily appetites for the glory of God. Uh, we're glorifying and enjoying God, and we're, we're spiritually minded people. These are all biblical terms and concepts, but as defined by the truth of God. If we allow spirituality to become, again, merely a metaphysical category, so as to say, anything spiritual having to do with my soul is good, and therefore I can neglect the body, though Paul says there's a wisdom, there's a sort of wisdom that uh, at times we can fall into, uh, a man-made wisdom that says, yes, let's, let's just totally wreak havoc on the body for the good of the soul. And he says it's of no profit, as we'll see in a moment, according to, uh, to, to subduing the flesh. It's of no profit no value, neglecting the body for its own sake. So let's be balanced here. So the first aspect, keep yourselves from materialism. Keep yourselves from materialism. Uh, we should be spiritually minded. In other words, we should not live life, as Paul often says, according to the flesh. Our priorities in life should not be defined by our bodily appetites, and then, well, we just kind of give God uh, whatever's left. Uh, when people live primarily according to their bodily appetites and they prioritize these things ahead of God, seeking those things first rather than seeking His kingdom and His righteousness, when they do that, they're living in a carnal way, in an unspiritual way. Materialism, which is so common in our own day. Young people, as you're making plans for the future, uh, middle-aged people, as you're making plans for the future, really all of us, as we're making plans for the future, uh, are we focused more on making plans for the future temporally, or are we also, really even more so, focusing on preparing for the future spiritually and preparing for eternity? Both are important, just like body and soul are important, but uh, a young person who's so focused on uh, climbing the ladder and ascending to uh, the heights of a successful career and education and occupation, all these things, uh, and that's the driving force, that's a huge problem, right? You should be focused on being the most godly person that you can be. 
in uh, reflecting the image of God in your soul and in your life. Luke 12, 23. Jesus says, Life is more than food, and the body is more than clothing. So Jesus is repudiating materialism, not material things, but when material things become the priority, really they become our life. Uh, David in the Psalm says, Psalm 63, that God's loving kindness is better than life. So David lost a lot of his creature comforts. He's in exile in that Psalm, if memory serves. But he's saying that the fact that he maintained the loving kindness of God in his life means that uh, it's better than life. And he can be content in, in whatever circumstance, as Paul elsewhere says. Uh, also, uh, that same chapter, Luke 12, verse 29. Do not seek what you should eat or what you should drink, nor have an anxious mind. For all these things the nations of the world seek after, and your Father knows that you need these things. But seek the kingdom of God, and all these things shall be added to you. So understand, and the reference to that in Matthew 6 is probably more uh, familiar to us. Seek first the kingdom. Don't be saying like the Gentiles, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? Uh, As we're looking ahead to a potentially uh, miserable immediate future as a Western society, as we look at our country, we look at the economy breaking down, we look at the world wars taking place, And we say, in the short term, God seems to be judging us and things could get a lot worse. Should we be preparing for what we'll eat, drink, and wear? Sure. But should that be the focus? Right? We need spiritual preppers. Right? We need to be preparing so that we're ready to face whatever we face in those FEMA camps when when our stockpile is long gone. Okay? And we're still having to live the Christian life. Uh, whom have I in heaven but you, and what on earth do I desire besides you, the psalmist says, Psalm seventy-three twenty-five. God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. And this brings us to Colossians 3, 1, which is a passage that directly addresses the spiritual heavenly-minded focus of the believer. Elsewhere, Paul says that We are um, citizens, not of this world, where our God is our belly, but rather uh, our citizenship is in heaven. But here, Colossians 3, verse 1. If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. Now, sometimes the Lord has to... uh, Sometimes the Lord has to bring circumstances into our earthly lives that cause us to want to stop looking at our earthly situation. And it's too painful, and it's too difficult, and then we look up to Him. And praise God that He does do that because He loves us, and He weans us from this world. But at the same time, we should grow in maturity so that we can set our mind on things above even when things are going well in our earthly lives. Right? How much more spiritually mature would we be if we can be stewards of earthly blessing and still keep our eyes on our heavenly inheritance? But the point is, it, our eyes should be on heavenly things. For you died, 
and your life is hidden with Christ in God. So that's really where the substance and eternal destiny of your life is held in the balance, is in Christ, in heaven. Uh, and so what should the righteous do when the foundations are destroyed? Look to the Lord who's sit, sitting in the heavens because our life is secure in Him. Uh, when Christ who is our life appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. So there's coming a day when this hidden life will be fully manifested and you'll shine like the sun in the kingdom of your Father and you will enjoy a, a public uh, co- commendation from the Savior, public beauty and glory, a visible reality for all eternity as a child of God. So that, that's more important than our earthly, temporal, physical lives. Again, that, as we'll see in a moment, don't take that to the extreme. Um, as uh, Philippians says, let your moderation be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. Uh, but it's still a principle to be applied. Uh, Then he says, Therefore put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. So he's saying that when we allow our temporal situation, what we eat, drink, and uh, wear, and when we allow temporal concerns and physical appetites to become the thing we seek first and the thing that we identify most closely with our life, what happens? We set our eyes on those things and and where our treasure is, there our heart is. And so now we fall into these various violations of the law of God. The only way to keep the law of God is to keep these other things in check and to keep God as the priority, which is the whole point of the first commandment, which is why it comes first. God alone is God. Love Him with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. And when we fall into these various forms of covetousness, we commit idolatry against our spiritual God. We're meant to be satisfied. We have, we have an eternity in our hearts to be satisfied by the spiritual essence of God through Christ, and yet we're seeking outward tangible things and we're never satisfied. And that's how this manifests itself in our sinful conduct. Now, uh, he goes on to say that we, we join forces there, in a sense, with the sons of disobedience when we do that. Now, I want you um, to turn back now to Colossians 2, the previous chapter, because we're going to conclude here by taking up Paul's exhortation that we keep ourselves from asceticism. We keep ourselves from asceticism. In other words, neglect of the body for its own sake. Rather than denying ourselves for the purpose of following Christ, and so, for instance, we even would hate father and mother or our own life or our own body if it's required in our discipleship as a follower of Christ, absolutely. But we need to be careful of the idea that says uh, we're going to actually be more proactive than that. We're not just going to deny ourselves for the purpose of following Christ. We're not just going to hate our own body or our parents or whomever. Uh, they rarely include the parents, but logically you'd, ha- you'd have to include the parents, right? Um, but anyway... Uh, the, all those statements are part of the equation. So you'd have to, the, the, the person who takes the asceticism route 
is saying, I'm going to deny and hate and neglect all these things for their own sake or as a proactive way of helping myself to become more spiritual, I'm going to, uh, without reference to any specific need, I'm just going to cut these things off and neglect these things and that's going to make me more spiritual. And that's a problem. It's one thing if God sends affliction in your life and He takes these things away. Or it's another thing if God sends a command into your life that would force you in order to obey the command to deny certain things. Okay? It's one thing if God has commands embedded in His law which enable us to deny these things, such as occasional fasting and, and things of this sort. But when we take it as an all-encompassing strategy of sanctification to put away physical things and to exalt metaphysically spiritual things in a way that goes beyond the biblical definitions, this is a problem. And this is asceticism. And this has been a problem from the early church on, from the days of the apostles on. And in any day and age where biblical moderation is not very popular, which is like our own day. It's just always extremes, one pendulum uh, swing to the other, uh, polarization at every turn. This needs to be said. Uh, we need to have spiritual lives that are also defined by the Holy Spirit in the Bible. We want to be spiritual as defined by the Bible, not just spiritual as a metaphysical construct or philosophy without a brake pedal on it, right? It just, anything spiritual is good and deny and neglect the body and so on and so forth. We need it to be within the parameters of spirit-defined living. And so self-denial, as I said, when it conflicts with obedience or with the ordinances or commandments of God, we need to deny ourselves. Also, we remove the weights that hinder us as as Hebrews 12 says. So we remove distractions at appropriate times through fasting or abstaining from various things. The New Testament talks about that. Uh, But never for its own sake, just because it's physical or as a primary means of sanctification. It should not be the focus. It's not the focus in the New Testament and it shouldn't be the focus in the pulpit. It shouldn't be the focus in the pew or in family worship. It's, it's something that's there as a tool in the tool belt. But sanctification is not primarily metaphysical. As if we, we need to view all of our physical appetites with suspicion. As if they're evil. As if they're a threat. As if a, a, a tasty slice of apple pie is out to get us. It's going gonna, it's gonna to make us unspiritual rather than receiving it and giving thanks to God and being increased in our holiness and giving thanks to God for His good gifts. You see, we become suspicious of the apple pie. And uh, no doubt Satan baked that pie and put it, uh, put it on the kitchen table for us to, to bring us down. So we need to be careful of these things. Now, of course, I'm speaking tongue-in-cheek. I'm not suggesting people are saying it that way, and I don't want to be uncharitable, but I'm just trying to keep you awake here. So the, the point is, we need to follow what Paul says in Colossians 2. Colossians 2 and uh, verse 20. Therefore, if you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world, why, as though living in the world, 
do you subject yourselves to regulations? So asceticism is a basic principle of the world. It may not seem like it to us, because in our Western society, it's really not the principle of the world around us. But throughout the history of world religions and in many religions today, asceticism is very much promoted. And Paul dealt with various philosophers who advocated stoicism and asceticism of various kinds. So we need to understand that when it goes off the rails from a biblically defined spirituality, it, it does become a principle of the world. He says, uh, why do you subject yourselves to regulations? Do not touch, do not taste, do not handle, which all concern things which perish with the using, according to the commandments and doctrines of men. So Jesus says we're defiled by what comes out of us, but people can be uh, overly concerned with what goes into us or with our physical behaviors and the things we partake of and and all these aspects of temporal living. And of course, we want to obey God's commandments. But what about things that are not sinful inherently? Uh, People are imposing throughout the history of world religion man-made commandments uh, and uh, the, they often do it with the best of intentions and the best of motives, and yet the essence, the thrust of their view of, of holiness is don't touch, don't taste, don't handle. Uh, and uh, th- this is a problem uh, according to the doctrines and commandments of men. These things indeed have an appearance of wisdom, and that makes sense, right? Right? If you deny yourself that apple pie, you could say, well, I'm cultivating self-denial. I'm bringing my body into submission. And so by not eating the apple pie, maybe when Satan comes to tempt me for something that is sinful, I'll be ready and I'll, I'll be more disciplined. And of course, it's not wrong if you want to voluntarily take that approach. Uh, but the danger is these things be, can, can creep in as doctrines and commandments of men where people aren't just saying well i privately abstain from the apple pie for these spiritual reasons and it's between me and god in the secret place and it stays in the secret place and he rewards me openly because i felt him leading me to deny myself something okay but it can work itself into the doctrines and commandments of public teaching and that's where it really becomes a problem according to paul It has the appearance of wisdom, and we can all relate, in self-imposed religion. False humility and neglect of the body, but are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. Now, let me be careful here. I'm not saying that we should be censorious and go around, if if somebody preaches on holiness and self-denial and says it's stronger than we're used to, that we should go around saying, uh, that what, this person is filled with self-imposed religion and false humility and, and so on and so forth. Um, we don't want to judge a person's motives in that. We need to be very careful. Uh, many of us probably, the thing we struggle the, the, the least with is having too much self-denial, too much self-discipline, too much focus on heavenly-minded things to the neglect of our temporal affairs. So sometimes we need to be shocked into seriousness about these things. And so let's be careful that we're not uncharitable with some of these perspectives that we may find at times strike us as uncharitable. We need to always seek to glean and learn the truth from these things. Um, But we need to be careful if you're trying to battle the indulgence of the flesh 
neglecting your body will not be of any value. Does that make sense? That should not be your strategy for overcoming the flesh. Neglecting your body. You are a psychosomatic being. So you need sleep and you need to eat healthy and you need to be serious about taking care of your body for the purpose of having members that are instruments for righteousness. And so uh, you, you need to understand that and not think that neglecting your body is somehow going to make you more spiritual. It could actually cause all kinds of problems in your spiritual life because your bodily lack of health is now negatively impacting your soul in a variety of ways. So be careful. Spirituality is number one, but if we look at biblical uh, principles, the body is close behind it as a very important thing. Yes, if you feel that your body is being uh, pampered and it's becoming an end in itself, maybe take some radical measures. You know, fast. Uh, deny yourself certain things to show your body who's boss. Self-control, according to the Holy Spirit. That there are uh, s- severe measures that can be taken on occasion. Not denying that at all. But just be careful that, as Paul says, uh, you don't make this your, your strategy for overcoming sin, just uh, neglecting the body. And if you look at chapter 3, he goes on to speak of heavenly mindedness. So it's taking good care of your body and having a high view of the body and thanking God for satisfying your bodily appetites actually is not at odds with heavenly mindedness, but according to Paul, it promotes it all the more. And he's not willing to speak of heavenly mindedness until he's made this clarification so that we don't fall into asceticism. And more than that, if you look at the sins that he's saying are inconsistent with heavenly mindedness, notice, uh, again, just saying uh, in a sort of jesting way, but apple pie is not on the list, is it? It's violations of the Ten Commandments that are on the list that are inconsistent with heavenly mindedness. So we need a spirituality that is defined not metaphysically, but ethically by the law of God, by the Bible, by Christ and His example. And my friends, Jesus had a body and still has a body. And he, He might have denied His body for the specific purpose of obedience on various occasions, but He didn't neglect His body because he says, Psalm 40, a body you've prepared for me. He received his body in the incarnation as a gift from God, and he still has a body, and he died to save your body. And my friends, God loves your body, Jesus loves your body, and your body's going to be raised up at the last day, and in heaven you will enjoy bodily enjoyments in the context of God's glory. Uh, So be careful with this. Uh, you, you can read for yourself uh, 1 Timothy 4, 1-9. through 9. Paul essentially says the same thing, that this sort of bodily exercise, these bodily uh, strategies for, for godliness uh, are, are not the way that we ought to be uh, conducting ourselves. Uh, forbidding to marry, abstaining from foods. No, receive these bodily enjoyments with thanksgiving and... Uh, recognize that God has created them and sanctify them with the word and prayer. So, spirituality defined by the Holy Spirit in Scripture. Does anybody have any questions?
All right, let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word which instructs us and which always has more to teach us. Uh, We find ourselves learning every time we open it up, every verse that we study, there's more to behold, more to adjust in our lives. And uh, we pray that you would use these truths to sanctify us unto spiritual, heavenly-minded living, that we would be good stewards of our bodies, that they might be instruments of righteousness, that we may live heavenly-minded lives in accordance with your revealed will in the Scriptures. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.